The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. As you've heard, we are going through Matthew's um, account of Jesus' sermon on the Mount. And Jesus here is speaking to his followers about the characteristics that make up a true disciple. And so he walks through these characteristics and he is addressing some of the most really relevant issues of our time. He kind of puts a finger right where we struggle, right where our greatest needs are. And then he helps us to find where our hope truly is and our satisfaction ought to be met forever in him and in the gospel. And so Jesus has been walking through what some call the pillars of Judaism in Matthew chapter 6. And he began with giving or, or giving to the poor or giving alms. And then last week we saw his teaching and modeling on prayer as we looked at the, the Lord's Prayer. And then today we're going we're gonna to consider his teaching on fasting. And this is Jesus' third illustration of that point that he's trying to make there in verse 1 of, of chapter 6. Look there, chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's kind of the controlling statement of the rest of this, this, this passage. This week I was thinking about some of our, our greatest spiritual enemies, and I think it's pretty true that often they are not the things we think of when we think of spiritual enemies. They're actually the things that are most common to us, and sometimes the most even wholesome things in our lives. The things that we handle every day, the things that we kind of grow to expect, to, that, that give us comfort, that will help us through difficult situations, that give us something to look forward to. These are actually the things that, if we're not careful, can be our downfall. John Piper says it this way, The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are for the simple pleasures of the earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. If you hear what Piper is saying there, when we are enslaved to this idolatry of the common, it's hard to to point out. We're not bowing down to an idol. But it's something that inoculates us with worldliness that we don't even realize that we have a problem. When Jesus explains why some hear the word of God and don't respond to it, he says there in Luke 8, they're choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And then in Mark 4, the desires for other things come in and choke the word. Friends, our hearts kind of have this daily drift toward the worship of the gifts of God that he gives us in life more than the giver himself. And our appetites can, can be off balance. They can be out of control in everything from wanting praise from men to wanting another plate of dessert. And so Jesus addresses again hypocrisy this morning as he considers the way the religious leaders of his day fasted. They fasted in front of others to be seen by them and to be praised and to be reverenced as holy. And so Jesus points us back to the roots of the act of fasting itself. Again, he doesn't do away with it, as we've seen as a practice in the Sermon on the Mount, but he puts the weight on our motive. So on a topic like this that's been, I would say, fairly muted in evangelical practice, 
Uh, we need to actually step back a little bit and begin with the practice itself, kind of its background and purpose and, and, and practice for today before we look to Jesus' uh, kind of correction of a way of hypocritically fasting. We probably need to look back and say, well, what is fasting and are we fasting and, what, and should we be fasting? So if fasting is totally absent from our lives, we need to ask why. And if it's something Jesus expects us to practice, we need to ask how. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit before we get to the actual verses that we're going to cover uh, this morning. Here's the main point of the, of the sermon. Christian fasting is not a religious show, but it's a means to deeper dependence upon God. Christian fasting is not a religious show, but a means to deeper dependence upon God. And there's some notes there in your bulletin if you want to follow along. The outline is there, but I want us to see, see three things here from this passage. I want us to first consider the purpose of fasting. What's the purpose of fasting? And then secondly, when you think about the motive for fasting, why we fast, what's the motive for fasting? And then finally, the focus, number three, the focus of fasting. So the purpose, the motive, and focus. And so I'm kind of showing my cards here at the beginning that I think Jesus desires us today to fast. I take that mainly from verse 16 there in chapter 6 when he says, when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast. So, So what does that look like for us? So let's start with the purpose of fasting. Number one, the purpose of fasting. Here's a definition that I found of fasting that I think is helpful I'll try to say it twice, but just just listen. Fasting is a temporary renunciation of something that is in itself good, like food, in order to intensify our expression of need for God and His work in our lives. Fasting is a temporary renunciation or turning away from something that is in itself good. So we don't need to fast from sexual immorality. We just need to stop that. Okay, turn away from it. But something like food, okay, so something that's good, in order to intensify our expression of need for God and His work in our lives. As we, as we look through the Bible, we see that definition poured, kind of unpacked in, in several ways. Uh, Israel was called to fast, both corporately and individually, kind of as a nation and then as individuals. The Old Testament law called for self-denial, or the words of the phrase of humbling of your soul, particularly on the Day of Atonement, this festival day that celebrated the, or looked forward to the atonement of God's people, which included abstaining from, from work, from eating, from drinking, from, from marital relations, from, from washing, anointing, even putting on sandals. And then fasting also developed around the Jewish New Year, this anniversary and, and other anniversaries of long-remembered um, tragedies in Israel's history in times of national crisis. Uh, one clear connection that we see in the Bible is the relationship between prayer and fasting. So, so fasting, if it's not connected with a deeper walk with God, it's just kind of a weight loss strategy or a religious show. It's not a mechanical hoop that we, that we just jump through. Fasting in the Bible is a sign of several things. One thing it is is a sign of repentance. And so Nehemiah assembled uh, the people with fasting and sackcloth as they stood and confessed their sins. If you remember, the, the people of Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching, and then they proclaimed a fast, and they put on sackcloth. 
Daniel sought God by prayer with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. And as he prayed, he made confession for the sins of his people. Even Saul of Tarsus, when he's converted on the road to Damascus, if you remember, goes three days without food or water, likely a sign of his repentance. So we see it as a sign of repentance. We also see fasting in Israel's history as a sign of great need, their great need especially for God in times of of crisis or needed direction. So Jehoshaphat, he saw the the armies of Moab and, and Ammon coming into the city towards him, and he set himself to seek the Lord. And then he proclaimed a fast throughout Judah. Queen Esther, before she takes her life into her own hands, going before the king, calls on Mordecai to gather the Jews and hold a fast in her behalf as she goes on this life-risking endeavor. Ezra proclaimed a fast before uh, leading the Gentiles back to Jerusalem. He said that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a straight way. And of course, as we think about Our greatest example of dependence on God, dependence on the Father, we look to Jesus. And Jesus himself fasted, fasted for 40 days and and 40 nights in preparation for his public ministry as he was about to enter into temptation from Satan in the wilderness. But the practice continued even after Jesus. The early church fasted. Christians in the, in the early church fasted. At Antioch, we read this in Acts 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then, after fasting, more fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So there you see the early church doing kind of a corporate church-wide fast that communicates this desire to be open to God's direction for them, especially as it relates to reaching the lost and even giving up some of your best leaders to do that, to go plant a church elsewhere. And God totally transformed the world through that, through answering their prayer through that time. That's what the first church did. But just know this, Jesus is not teaching a kind of a mechanical view of fasting. Not just because he wants us to be more authentic when we fast, but because he wants us to truly hunger for him. As the fulfillment of all the feasts and the one who was promised to truly satisfy the waters that would never run dry. So if you remember the disciples of John the Baptist uh, come questioning Jesus in Matthew 9, and they say this in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So catch this. When Jesus is physically with his disciples, they need not fast because the object of their desire, the author of life, is actually with them. Uh, The bridegroom is there. There's no need to get ready for or to look ahead to the wedding. He is there. But then he he clearly says when the bridegroom is taken away, then, then they will fast. So Jesus died on the cross. He was buried and rose from the grave and then ascended bodily, as we said, uh, to the Father and will come again. And until he does, Jesus says his followers will fast. Couple that with the when you fast from our passage in chapter 6. 
And the way the early church understood Jesus' teaching, I think we have an expectation here from Jesus for his disciples, for Christians, to fast. And here we see another reason why we should do that, to cultivate a longing for his return. We would cultivate a longing for Jesus to come back. So fasting as a Christian practice seems to be an expectation from Jesus, not as a rule to follow like like any other thing that we've been studying, but as a means of worshiping him and expressing our need for him. And so I, I say Christian fasting because there's lots of other means of fasting, lots of other reasons to fast. You could fast for your bodily health. You can go on a juice fast if you want to and just drink juice. I'll pray for you. You could do an intermediate fast, intermittent fast where you, you try to not eat between certain hours of the day to boost your metabolism. You can eat breakfast um, and break your fast that way. Um, that's another way to do it. If you're a, if you're a Muslim, fasting is, is no laughing matter. It's more of a seal of approval uh, in Islam, required in Ramadan. Now listen, there's no explicit command in the New Testament to fast. Like, you, you must fast this way. I think there's freedom here for us to see in the way that it's, it's pictured in, in the Bible. It seems that fasting is different than, say, some other uh, Christian disciplines uh, that we see we're, um, we're, called, we're called to practice more daily and regularly, like worship, like worship and, and prayer and reading the Bible. You can't really fast every day or you'll die, right? So th- there has to be some regular eating. There's a difference, I think, between the way we think about self-control, for example, or, or bodily discipline when it comes to, to food and, and moderating how much we eat or maybe it's screens that we've decided, okay, we've spent way too much time looking at my phone or this video game or this TV screen and it, it needs to, to go away or shopping or whatever the, the case may be. Fasting is this temporary kind of periodic special way of engaging with, with God. But I don't think our conclusion should be that it's unimportant or that we never do it. We neglect it as individuals or corporately as a, as a church. So my encouragement to you is, is especially if you're here as a Christian, and, and fasting has been really foreign to you, kind of a foreign concept, listen to God's Word and look to incorporate it in your walk with Jesus. After all, we are those who are regularly repenting, as we see uh, in, the, in, the, in the Bible, fasting as a, a sign of that. We are regularly in great need for God every day, and particularly at times when, when things come our way that we don't know what to do or we, we particularly need God's, God's help and his direction, and we want to be those that are longing for his return, longing for Christ to come back. That's what, that's what fasting is. That's the purpose for fasting. So let's consider, let's, let's go to our second observation then this morning, the motive for fasting. I went to the dentist this past week and not for a cleaning, but for a filling. I had a cracked tooth. Don't judge me. It wasn't a cavity. But the first thing they did when I go in is they take this gel and they put it on my gums for a little bit, my, a little bit on my, in the inside near my, my teeth and my lip or whatever. And about 10 minutes later, it, it's fairly numb. And then the dentist comes in after that with a needle and begins to stab me with it many times and and, and injects me with more of this um, numbing agent. And then just, I sat there kind of for 10 minutes for that to kick in. 
Uh, and then I kind of couldn't feel a lot of my face. And then he comes in with a, a, a drill and, and drills out this section of my tooth and puts a filling in and tears some other things out. Uh, usually for me, that's really tortured. By God's grace, this time I didn't feel anything. It was actually numb. Um, I didn't know, I didn't feel all that violence that was going on in my mouth because it was, it was really, really numb. In fact, the rest of the day, I was spilling water on myself, trying to drink water because my face was numb. Now, that didn't prompt me to fast, okay, because my tooth was sore. But it did help me to think about that, the effects kind of that, of that numbing agent and how much often I don't even realize how I can be numb to things in my own life, God's work in me, or even my own sin, uh, or kind of an attachment I have to the world. And I think fasting can be a mechanism for kind of waking us up a little bit from that stupor and reminding us of our true need for God. You know, sometimes food can be one of those numbing agents in our lives. Just think about the purpose of food. Uh, Before the fall, God provided food uh, for Adam and Eve in the garden, just enough to meet their their needs, enough to, to provide for them, to take care of their bodies. There's kind of this matching between their appetites and God's provision that works out um, just right. But then after the fall, you see both the appetite of man and God's provision kind of changing. So, so Adam would have to now eat by the sweat of his brow, working against the hard ground, the thorns and the thistles, searching for food in that way. And now his appetite was sort of out of control, no longer gauged by need, but now by greed and what he wants. Whereas before, food was rightly seen as a God's good gift. Now it can easily be made into a God in and of itself. You can easily turn, turn to food for things and a host of other things, right? To give us what only God provides. So we can turn to food sometimes for, for, for peace, Something we can only find in God. We can turn to food to, to kind of medicate ourselves to overcome feelings of anger or depression or, or loneliness. We eat when we need to be comforted. And so may we particularly turn to comfort food to eat when we need comfort. Food can become the source of our joy instead of a source for joy. It should be a source for joy. I think it's okay to get excited about a plate of fajitas. Um, praise God for that but it can't be the source of your joy. We can suddenly transition from eating to live to living to eat. And again, it's not just food that can serve as an idol for us. It could be possessions. It could be sex, sports, you name it. We, whatever on that conveyor belt into our heart that, that turns into an idol. So a clear motive in fasting is both to reduce our hunger for the world and to stimulate our hunger for God. Reduce our hunger for the world and stimulate our hunger for God. Jesus Jesus said his disciples will be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So if righteousness is what God has for us, I wonder if we're spoiling our appetite in some way by just snacking on the things of the world. We don't desire then what he has actually prepared for us. That's much better. One author says it this way, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. So we fast because fasting says, I don't live for my appetites. I set aside physical desires so that I can seek God in prayer, that I can desire God. 
more than anything else. And then when our bodies feel, feel weak, our stomachs grumble, we're reminded of our frailty and the strength that only comes from God. Jesus said when he was tempted to turn stones to bread on his fast, Matthew 4, 4, he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, brother or sister, just think about this. What might be numbing you today? What might be one of those numbing agents that's at work, kind of numbing your heart to the things of God? Maybe it's something that that you see it kind of in a lack of compassion for people who are lost. Maybe you don't think about that much or you don't think about the reality of hell that's going to intersect with that lost person when they die unless they come to Christ. Maybe it's a lack of, of compassion for people who are unreached in the world and kind of out of sight and out of mind. Maybe it's a numbing effect that you're no longer sensitive to the relevance and the power of God's word. And so it's either neglected or it just feels kind of, kind of boring and it's not really doing anything for us. Friends, we know the problem isn't with the Bible. The problem is with us. Maybe there's something that's kind of numbing you from the fellowship with other believers, keeping you from spending time to others. You're not seeing the value that maybe you used to. You'd rather spend the afternoon look, watching football than in fellowship with others from the church. Fasting itself can actually reveal some of these issues in our hearts. Uh, when, we, when we kind of do this and we commit we're going to pray and fast, sometimes these things bubble up. If we remove food, for example, and maybe the sudden, you know, response is crankiness. You know, we're hungry, so we're mean to everyone around us. Well, we know that doesn't actually come from hunger. It comes from our hearts. It was there, just kind of bubbled up out of removing this this thing from our life that we've come to depend on. Or maybe if we decide we need to fast from social media, from screens in general, maybe that's something that we need. And, and immediately we find ourselves not knowing what to do with our lives. We're in withdrawals. Our heart idol has been discovered. So, beloved, we want to be vigilant to guard our hearts from these numbing agents of the world around us and the idols that, that so easily we can get used to and close with. I think it's important to remember that there are certainly wrong motivations for fasting. So Jesus addresses one in our verses today, right? Um, There's wrong motivations for prayer. There's wrong motivations for giving. For example, you can think of the kind of fasting, you could think of fasting as like a guarantee for results. If I fast, I know God will know I'm serious and he'll give me the thing I'm fasting about and praying about. If we put in the sacrifice, God will owe us an answer or a miracle. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, The moment we say, because I do this, I get that, it means we are controlling the blessing or seeking to control it. That's to insult God and to violate the great doctrine of his final and ultimate sovereignty. So we must never advocate fasting as a means of blessing or merely a means of blessing. There are no bargaining chips like this with God. So giving and prayer and fasting, there's nothing we're going to do that's going to impress God so much or manipulate God so much into doing exactly what we want to be done. No, our motive needs to be wanting more of Him, to be led actually by Him, to ask Him to act for His glory, to have Him conform us to His image. 
If you want to just kind of dive in a little bit more to fasting, it's not something you're familiar with, I'll just recommend two resources. Uh, one is Donald Whitney's book, The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. It's got a chapter on, on fasting, and there's other great chapters in that book I would encourage you to read. And then John Piper has a book, Hunger for God, that I would encourage you to, to look at and to think about. And this is just like a completely new idea for you. And maybe you're here this morning, and it, more than a new idea, this whole thing is a new idea. Coming to church is a new idea. And, and maybe you're just trying to figure out what Christians believe in general. So if that's you, let me just be clear for a moment in what I'm not saying about fasting as a practice. A Christian is, Christianity, rather, is unlike any other religion. So, so the Jew, Jews will fast and Muslims will fast, Buddhists will fast. But the purpose of those fasts is always somehow to, to gain some favor or, or, or merit or approval from their gods. Friends, that is not at all what we're talking about this morning when we're talking about fasting. The Bible tells us that there is only one God, and he is supreme in the universe. He's the creator of all and and totally separate from us and, and other from us. He's holy. He's set apart, and he's good. And we are absolutely unable to do anything to earn his favor because all of our best efforts are stained with our sin. So we could fast every day, We could feed the poor every day and give away all of our money, and that still won't earn us favor with the true God. He is that holy, and our sin is that serious. So there will be many philanthropists in hell because they have rejected Christ. Christianity is based not on our efforts, but on God's mercy. He sent Jesus, his son, into the world to live a life that was pleasing to God. Jesus did that. With his life. He, he was without sin. He never sinned. And he laid his life down then as an atoning sacrifice for us. Those that deserve God's wrath, Jesus died for on a cross to take God's wrath upon himself so that if we would trust him, we could be made new. We could be forgiven of our sin. Only through Christ can we be saved. And so, friend, I want to encourage you, before you think a whole lot about just fasting, think about repentance. Think about turning away from your sin, from worshiping your own desire, your own appetites, yourself. Understand that you were made for much, much more. You're made to know and worship God. And the only way to God is through Jesus. Believe on Jesus. That's the only way you and I can be made right. Talk to someone around you today if you have questions about what that looks like. Or I'd love to talk to you afterwards if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian. Well, so far we haven't looked at our text, so we better do that. Number three, the focus of our fasting. So if you put your Bible down, now pick it up. Now we're, I think, ready to look at what Jesus says about fasting. At least we have a category for it in our, in our minds. And look at Matthew 6, verse 16. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So like giving and like prayer, like almost any good thing, we see 
that sin can find a way to pervert fasting and to make it about us. So that's nothing new for Israel. Uh, God condemned through the prophets hypocrisy in fasting throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah condemned the people as they ignored his prophetic words, although they went kind of through the motions of a nationalistic or national fast. Isaiah rebuked Israel for making uh, fasting an empty ritual with only kind of outward signs like bowing your head and wearing sackcloth and ashes. Yet they were living in wickedness. They were oppressing the poor. They were ignoring the needs of others around them. There was no real change in their life. It was an outward action without any kind of inward love for God. So Isaiah 58 verse 6, we read this. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? You see God's heart behind this. Not that we'd be disconnected from our own lives, but that we would maybe uh, get rid of or not have a meal that day that we might share with others that don't have a meal. Like Isaiah's message, fasting, Jesus is talking to us and reminding us that, that, that not everyone has food to eat. Not everyone lives in a country like ours and enjoys freedom. Not everyone has a roof over their heads. And if we find ourselves kind of numb to those realities, consider repentance and consider fasting. Asking God to awaken in you some compassion that's not there right now to the reality of most of the world. Fasting is a means of grace, so it's not an end to itself. And those in Israel's day, or in Jesus' day, rather, in Israel, were fasting in a way that would be very obvious to everyone around them. So they're having this kind of gloomy look on their face, really sad, poking out their lip, haven't eaten, even disfiguring their faces, which probably means rubbing ashes on their faces. And going unwashed and letting their hair go unkempt. So it's, it's a self-righteous display. Another way to get others to praise them for their religious commitment. And those who do this, Jesus said, have received their reward. The applause and respect of man. And that is all. C.S. Lewis points out kind of the dangers of fasting when he says, Fasting asserts the will against the appetite, the reward being self-mastery and the danger pride. Practices which in themselves strengthen the will are only useful insofar as they enable the will to put its own house in order as preparation for offering the whole man to God. It's only useful to to have our bodies in control that we might offer our whole bodies to God, he says. Outward, superficial religious acts are of no use. Paul says the same thing. These acts, he says in Colossians 2, 23, have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's no power in these man-made duties. And so Jesus instructs us to fast in a way that doesn't draw attention to ourselves. So he says, anoint your head. So wash, for us, wash your hair. Um, Wash your face, brush your teeth, take a shower. Don't make it so obvious that you're fasting. 
We should go out of our way to keep other people from knowing that we're fasting. We shouldn't tweet that we're fasting or put it on Facebook. There's a, there's a radically Godward focus in what Jesus is calling us to here. That doesn't mean that we pretend that we're not fasting at all, or we try to overcompensate by being extra bubbly and, and, and you know, happy-go-lucky, or even lying about it if someone asks us. So that commits kind of the opposite error, doesn't it? But if you're fasting on Tuesday, for example, maybe it's wise to avoid a breakfast and a lunch meeting that day so that you don't have to sit there in the restaurant the whole time and with the person that you're meeting with and the waitress and everyone around. Yes, I know, I'm fasting. Don't mind me. Make fasting between you and God, and he'll see what's done in secret and reward us, Jesus says. Now, as a church, I don't think this rules out corporate fasting. Um, like Jesus' warning about kind of babbling in prayer, I don't think that, that says you, all your prayers must be two sentences long. So the early church fasted and they, they prayed together. And so there's value for us as a congregation. We shouldn't be surprised as a congregation if, if we're called um, by the elders to join in a, a season of prayer and fasting, maybe even particularly this coming year, as we think about as a church what God might have for us in a new location. Our purpose isn't to put it on social media that, hey, we're praying and fasting so that we look particularly godly. No, our purpose is to seek God together as a people, that, that we would be conformed as a people to his image, that we wouldn't be selfish in, in our desires and our outlook on the future, that we'd have our own hearts broken by areas around us that are filled with lost people that don't have churches, about the, the students here on this campus that don't know Jesus, who are walking around every day just, just feet from where we meet for worship, that we would be willing to sacrifice our time or our money and maybe even willing to sell our house and move if that's what God would have us to do to impact a community for Christ. Fasting and prayer like this kind of plows up some of that hard spiritual ground in our hearts and helps us to be fertile for God's purposes. We're much more, more likely to, to pray then, or even be the workers that are raised up to go into the harvest field of souls in our city and around the world to preach the gospel. The fasting reminds us that although we love and depend on so many good gifts in life, it's only God that we cannot do without. It's only God that satisfies. And when we fast, we want to please him and honor him. So when we do this, when we consider fasting, when we consider praying and fasting, we consider Jesus' words, we're, we're prompted to ask, well, do I, love, do I love God? Do I hunger for more of God? Or am I pretty content with his gifts? Fasting makes us consider what we're going to do with our unhappiness, with our disappointment. As Foster says, we use often food and other good things to just cover up the sins inside of us. Are we going to cover up our distress with food, or are we going to bring it to Jesus? Our worry, our anxiety? We think if we maybe eat enough that the good feelings would balance out the bad? Or will we take that hunger to the Lord? Take it to the one who is the bread of life. Every meal that we enjoy kind of points to him. Fasting is just a servant of our faith in Jesus. It says with our stomach, with our whole body, that Jesus, you're better than everything on this earth. 
I love food, but I love you more. I love screens or I love shopping or whatever it is, but I love you more. And I never want my soul to be disordered, that those affections are, are, are wrong or out of the proper place. So when I enjoy food, I do it to your glory. When I neglect food, I do it to your glory, that I might walk closer with you. Yeah, Carson said that if our acts of righteousness are not primarily done secretly before him, then secretly they may be done to please men. Jesus says God will reward us. And the greatest reward is that his name would be hallowed. What we saw last week, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. His will be done. God himself would be our reward. And then one day we'll no longer be fasting, no longer waiting. But the bridegroom will return and we'll eat with him at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And there will be feasting like we've never dreamed, and satisfaction like we've never experienced. And that fasting actually begins now. That feasting, rather, actually begins now, preparing our hearts, training our souls to find our deepest satisfaction in God. So the psalmist reminds us of this as he says in Psalm 81.10, God says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. May that be true. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would satisfy us with who you are, that we would long to know you and long to be with you, long to see you come back and to make all the the wrong things that maybe we're aware of, particularly this week, right. And Lord, we pray that you would guard us from just going through life um, like all this is normal, like there's nothing wrong, like there's nothing missing. But that you would remind us of our great need personally for you to be conformed more into the image of Christ and the great need around us, the great needs in our own country as we see racial divides and hatred, political divides grow. Lord, we pray you'd bring healing. We pray you'd give us the grace to to be examples of love and not part of the problem. And Lord, all those that are dying apart from Christ, Lord, we pray that you would give us a burden for them and it would control how we spend our money, we control how we spend our time, how we pray, how we fast. Lord, we love you and we give you these things and pray that you would receive honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.